Hey everybody, it's Tom here from Warwick House Golf, proud sponsors of the Read It, Roll It, Hole It podcast. Use code RRH10 for 10% off at warwickhouse.golf. You are listening to Read It, Roll It, Hole It. He's two putts from victory. Only needs one. Welcome golfers to the next episode of the Read It, Roll It, Hole It podcast. Today we've got special guest on the show, Preston Coombs from Preston's putting from the garage or as we say it here in the in England the garage Preston how are you Ollie it's great to be here how are you doing very well thank you do you call it the garage we haven't managed to get you to say the garage yet you know I've been watching enough F1 since Drive to Survive came out on Netflix where I started calling it the garage and my wife said you better not start with any of that here (laughs) So <laughs> I will affectionately call it the garage. It does have a car theme to it. Big Camaro guy. Love my racing stuff. So we're uh, continuing to decorate as time goes on. Brilliant. What did you think to the F1 last weekend? Gosh, what an ending. I mean, you can't, you can't script anything any better. Uh, I guess we'll all thank Latifi at the end of the day, if you're on team Red Bull in any way, shape, manner or form there. So um th- leave it to leave it to the FIA to find ways to make it interesting and have some sort of controversy or controversy as you all might call it. <laughs> I think it's interesting with um yeah I think all the Hamilton fans are obviously going mad and I'm a Verstappen but I'm also a Russell fan but um Verstappen fan so I'm like yeah like I think it's wrong but I'm over the moon that Hamilton won't win again. <laughs> I'm just so it's my first full season where I can consider myself a fan from the first race to the last race. So just over the moon that first happened one for for me, I've been pulling for him since the uh, TV series came out. And it's great to see it finally come together for him on the big stage. And gosh, I mean, he's the team's done so well throughout the course of the year. And you think the fact that it was close and then you go back to like Silverstone and uh, and the blown tires at uh, where was that? Um, Azerban, was that right? It's going down the straight, wasn't he? With a couple, yeah, of laps the straight with like two two laps left, and there's that inexplicable puncture. I'm looking at that go, and you know, bad luck at the end of the day. So he's had the fact that he's still tied for all of this, even after those couple of events. And I think That's he great. was the clear cut better performer over the course of the season. He just doesn't know how to give up. Do you think he's a bit like Tiger? I think when you're talking about players at the highest level in any sport, there is a certain stubbornness and proper arrogance that comes with that territory in order to continue to defy the odds at a high level. You know, the people make jokes about Nicholas saying he's never missed a three footer, but the reality is that's his perception of himself. And he, displays that internal perception for the world and you have to consider that there's probably some connection between the way I'm thinking and how I present myself and how I perform I think we know that that exists but I think those players in that Woods, Nicholas, Verstappen, Jordan category all exhibit that at a very high level and they're certainly not bashful about it. No, no totally agree. I think thinking out loud here, Seve definitely was on that um, that cusp as well, I would say, of breaking the rules. He was known for sort of, you know, 
having a cough on someone's backswing, especially an American in the Ryder Cup. <laughs> yeah, I think actually I don't want to talk Ryder Cup. Sorry, don't even don't let's not even go down that journey. I wasn't going to, but you brought it up. <laughs> you guys, what what do you think to the Ryder Cup, Preston? Well, I think uh, Whistling Straits is your oddity, for an example, just because it's home soil and with the travel restrictions, it was very one-sided. So I don't, uh, you know, cool to win at the end of the day, but it'll be nice to head back across the pond uh, for the next one and see and see where to from here. Undoubtedly a fun event. I was at Ryder Cup in 2008 at Valhalla. I was an intern and went back for the event that week and I'll say that I've been to some really great sporting events. That's the most electric atmosphere I have ever been a part of. Nice. And, and I think that's what, that's what we're shooting for in all of this, right? Is that international competitiveness and the intense competition. And it's great that we don't see it every single week. But the fact that it's every couple of years and the heat's always turned up and the spotlight's on these 24 guys expected to perform at a high level because well that's why they're there sure absolutely it's a wonderful event and yeah the i think for us the the loss hurt this year and we hope to return the favor in uh in italia in italian <laughs> next in a couple of years i don't know italia that's what i was trying to say italia so, uh, yeah, absolutely. Losses okay, hurt for either side every year, regardless of the external circumstances. Absolutely. Preston, what, um, who would you support? Say, let's say, you know, you're, you're a cool cat and you're going to have some, you've got great players. You're going to have some better golfers coming your way. And one day, in a couple of years, you'll have half the uh, European team come for pattern lessons. If you had six Europeans and no Americans, who would you support? Well, that answer is obvious. I support my team. Anybody that's on Team Preston's putting is getting the uh, we'll wet, wave the flag for them at the end of the day. So that's easy. Get Plus, there's something about the Olay chant that is just absolutely fantastic. And I'd like to actually be a part of that, or at least an excuse to be a part of that for at least one, one year in my life. I love it. So you're actually a secret European fan. I, it depends. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can't you use that to... on every answer today. By the way, oh, I can't. All right, how many? How many? It depends. Do I get? Do, do I get three? If so, I've used one already. I'll give you three and one. Three. One okay. One. okay. Okay. I'll have to keep. I'll have to keep track. Can we like run a little counter in the corner of the screen here? We can't have that answer for every uh, every question. Okay. <laughs> so, Preston, going back to uh, to the garage. You've recently moved to Florida, built the garage in your garage, in your house. Talk us through, um, yeah, that that move and, and, and sort of why that has come about and, and how's it been going? Yeah, the move from Santa Barbara, California out to Orlando, Florida, obviously not without its trials and tribulations when you're trying to move across the country and set up shop down here. But uh, my wife, Amanda, has been very supportive of the move and the change to uh, make the shift to part of the country that's easier to access. When we're talking about the world being your market and travel starting to come back, a lot of players are willing to make the trip to go find the specialist, go seek out the person that they think is going to give them the best opportunity. And I do those players a disservice if I don't position myself in a spot that's one flight, not two to get to me. 
Santa Barbara was always you have to connect through somewhere or rent a car and it's an extensive drive. And even driving up from L.A., it's a you know an ask to have somebody go three, four hours to battle traffic to come see you versus, oh, it's only you know a bigger portion of the state of Florida can be covered with reasonable driving with I can come from any part of the country and given that it's a tourist destination, you can pretty much plan on getting a nonstop flight to this part of the world. It's very accessible. It must be one of the biggest uh, airports in the U.S., is it, or not? Um, I, you know what? That's a great question. I don't know. I know it's busy, busy to year-round, too, and especially as we get near the holidays. Boy, I went to present in Dallas last week, and there were, um, we'll put it this way, I'm just thankful for clear and pre-check to be able to skip all those lines. <laughs> Happy days. That's cool. That's cool. So um, talk us through your uh, journey from sort of turning pro to becoming a putting specialist or putting coach. Um, people often ask me, you know, why putting? So uh, why putting? Why putting? I was always good at it as a kid. And after you, after I graduated college, it was obvious that hitting it 270 off the tee wasn't going to get the job done. Mm. And therefore you start paying attention to what, what are my other career options and obviously with a background to become an assistant pro head golf professional that track and realized that I didn't necessarily enjoy that particular lifestyle within the industry, but players at events would usually ask me about my putting about the tactics I was using. Even if I was caddying for friends and utilizing aim point for them, there would always be questions about it. And at that moment, I started recognizing there's probably something here. At the time, back in 2012, I didn't realize what it was or what it was going to turn into. But I did know that I didn't want to be the failed player that just told people, well, here's what I did. Cool. I think that's a disservice at the end of the day, given the amount of good information that's out there and available. And I sought out the formal education uh, through Mark Sweeney to get Aimpoint certified. And really really said okay well if this is the opportunity to show players where to hit a putt let me buy a sand putt lab and show them how to hit it there more often it's just data i should be able to figure out how to point the face of the target on any number of situations and started digging through the data realized very quickly that i had no idea of up from down and what was actually changing the numbers and sought out david Orr through flat stick and uh, he's been a great friend and mentor all these years to help guide me with an understanding of the 3D, 3D, the biomechanics and give players better answers, not just the conventional, let's get the shaft and the forearm in line at address to make the face more stable. Well, let's try this grip to just because everybody else is trying it, right? So I think that deeper understanding has really helped for me increase my my own knowledge base to get to better answers faster, but also the longevity with players too. If your knowledge depth as a coach only goes but so far, there's only so many things you can talk about. And I'm quite confident that there's years of information to pour through with players to build the ultimately sound machine. And I'm always just checking myself to ensure that the messages I'm sending are the proper ones at the proper time too. It's easy to get lost in the weeds in the coaching process. I find it really interesting, Preston, how our journeys have been very similar, really, from sort of 2012 to reaching out to Mark Sweeney to becoming Aimpoint certified to then needing a mentor or not needing a mentor, but needing more answers and, and finding David or 
in 2014 it was for me or 2015 and uh he's uh i remember the first time i met david we sat down in in spain and he um he, he introduced himself very calm david all really looking forward to a good few days and he said just a couple of things to start with is that um the pattern stroke isn't a pendulum it doesn't go straight back, straight through, and you shouldn't accelerate through the ball. Something like along those lines. A few, very, very calm, right? Really calm. And then Rolf Kinkle um, piped up. I don't know if you've met Rolf, but he's a great guy from Germany. And he goes, uh, isn't the, the pendulum like a good model or good theory for beginner golfers? And Dave goes, and beep, beep. It's not a beep, beep pendulum. How was your... Um, what was your first experience of meeting David Orr? Was you it know, uh, Give me a gosh, cool story. Let's see. The, the beginning started, let's see, my college friend and mentor, Mario Bevilacqua, introduced me to TJ Yeaton at the end of 2011. TJ extended the invite for me to come up to Campbell at Bowie's Creek, the original, uh, the original setup on site at the university. And we were in there on... We're in there on Friday night and gosh, uh, talk about being in the presence of the Godfather, I guess, right? Like this is, this is the guy that you've always heard about and it got very exciting very quickly. Uh, I think it was the triangle discussion yeah. <laughs> that popped up very early and there were, uh, it was a no holds barred discussion about how it's not a triangle, how it's not a pendulum and Gosh, there's so many memorable moments from that night. I don't even know where you start. Uh, I do remember he did, uh, picked on me pretty early because he was from he was from Jersey, and he's like, I gave some answer to a question about the symbiotic relationship between the player and the, between the player and the putter, and he goes, "Was that some Princeton education?" I go, "No, I went to Methodist <laughs> and the PGM school down the street." He says, "Oh, you're one of those." So he's uh, he's always poked fun at me, giving me a hard time for going to the rival uh, golf school down the street. Got you. I've got you. Happy days. Just um, going back to you saying like you always want to sort of get more answers and further, you know, further. So that's something I've definitely sort of learned from you and spent the time that we've, you know, the limited time that we've spent together on Zoom, unfortunately. Um, hopefully we do. Uh, we'll get together soon. But. You, the the willing or the desire to improve and to find out more, keep digging down that hole seems to be quite great. I want to know where where does that come from? Why why do you have a such burning desire to improve? I hate mediocrity, and I think as coaches in this generation we're responsible for providing the best information possible for our players and that good information conveying a message doesn't come from i made something up or i took bits of information that i saw online or in videos it needs to be solid or you will be found out very quickly somebody will ask you a question that you don't have a good answer for and you can't tap dance your way around it all the time i feel for my own junior golf career coming up that did I have some information? Yes. Was it good and relevant? Well, the fact that I only hit it, but so far off the tee means that somebody that I've surrounded myself with missed the memo that, hey, you should probably find ways to swing it faster and hit it further. That 
you should find ways to improve your alignments from P1 to four so that you can generate more speed without having to worry about missing it left or right. And there were obvious limitations for at my own performance. And I always kind of kept it to myself that, you know, if a 15 or 16 year old kid comes to me and says, I want to play better golf, whether that be full swing, short game or putting, it's my job to give them the best information possible. So at least they have a chance to play division one golf. I'm not saying that everybody that works with me is going to be on the path of the PGA tour. I mean, just it's logic, it's numbers. It can't happen. Right. But at least the opportunity to say, okay, at least the information that I presented somebody with was the path of least resistance it was a guided pathway to continued success with well-organized information and we'll see how far we can take it, but it shouldn't have been that guy didn't know his stuff. And if it is that because nobody's ever batting a thousand with their students, at least we can say I gave it my best effort. And that effort was not just a bunch of made up gobbledygook. So I love it. I love it. Great to hear. With um, with David, your mentor, um, what were the sort of main, what are the main sort of learnings you've gained from him over the years? That's a good one. Did you write that down before we started today? Uh, no, that's not one. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I haven't started on that. Let me gosh, have a look. Gosh, no, the main... This gosh, is boring stuff main, on here. Uh, the, main, the main stuff I've learned from learn from David I think the I think overall an appreciation of the complexity of what we're dealing with being able to know how many parts are moving around and begin to understand relationships between those moving parts I think that's the overall biggest picture I think when we start talking about the deeper stuff um, how he speaks about coaching players has been inspirational. Obviously, he and I won't coach the same way as far as dealing with players, but having an appreciation for what he has experienced at his level has certainly guided guided me in my own decision-making, my own processes. I think the famous line that he's offered, players come, players go, and some players come back, was something that I took to heart very early on. And it kept me with a good focus on the player in front of me, not my own needs or desires, right? It's easy to offer somebody a package or continued series of lessons to just try to keep them on board, but sometimes it's not a good fit and you don't force the issue, right? Sometimes you've given everything, given a person everything that they need. And, you know, just because they say, well, I want to come out and see you again, you know, a month from now, maybe it's right, maybe it's not. You know, so I think to keeping the player's best interest at hand has always been the the compass that I'm trying to follow. He certainly inspired that. Love that. Love that comment. It's uh, something that stuck with me as well. It uh, takes the emotion out of it as well a little bit. Where you you know you I, I remember sort of early days that players come, then they you know go to a different putting coach and you get all upset. You know, not literally, but um, well, you know, not you know. In, in front of everyone but um yeah it's uh it's, it's a good it's a good saying for sure yeah yeah so i think that's definitely helped frame some things along the way for me as far as my interaction with players my my own coaching philosophy the tagline on for preston's putting of create develop own 
is rooted to that in a degree for me that create represents creating understanding for players of what needs to happen and understanding what they should see from a performance standpoint if they're going through that portion of the process developing is developing awareness of what is actually happening when we attempt to execute developing an awareness of patterns and uh, our implementation of that information and then own is the the training aspects and not just the block practice it's the how am i measuring my performance how am i am i going through the proper steps in order to fully own that and it's not just a singular process of create, develop, own, right? They're kind of built in a triangle where that cycle continues. Mm -hmm. But if you can frame for a player that this is the continuing cycle of, we're going to create an understanding of size and tempo for speed, develop awareness with exercises and measuring dispersion, then create ownership of that by trying it in a variety of circumstances or implementing those tactics on the golf course then the cycle, once we've done that, the cycle starts again with creating understanding of a new topic or a new area. Let's say the mechanics in order to have been in order to improve their size and tempo by moving arm structure or grip or changing the putter, then developing awarenesses of how am I going to manage those setup changes? What are my practice plans and strategies to create ownership of a setup change? How am I going to use a camera effectively? How often am I going to look at those areas in order to make sure that I am uh, executing properly? Am I creating that ownership through proper amount of variable practice at setup? You know, so many players are so wrapped up in trying to do things right all the time that we lose sight of when things are beginning to shift. If they don't have an awareness of how big the corridor is or where they're living within that corridor, then that's where we start running into problems. You know, a good example would be forward bend. If a player has a tendency to stand at you know, 20 degrees of forward bend and it's too upright and we need them closer to, let's call it 40 degrees, that's a big change for them for that 15 degree jump. And they might make the change successfully on the first day. And then the second day they go back and they're at 39 and then 38, 37. And it's slowly deteriorating, but you're not going to notice a one degree change from day to day. But by day seven, when we're down to 33 degrees of forward bend, something feels a little bit weird, a little off, but we can kind of fit the putter in there, get the job done. Then by day 10, we're at 30 degrees. It's too close to the old pattern and it breaks. And that's the, I woke up today and I couldn't putt. It's like, nobody forgets overnight how to putt. Okay, let's be real here. There's probably been some amount of deterioration over a period of time from when we last left it to the point where it blew up in your face and we said, I suck what happened today. But because we're so wrapped up in trying to do things right, we might not notice those little incremental deviations from where it's supposed to be over a given period of time. And that's a problem. I'm educating my players that if you're going to practice things like setup changes, you also need to know where the edges of the road are. Wow. So many good nuggets just come out of your mouth. Well, as for a copy of my this head after, spinning. I want to start at the end there where you've said explore the edges. Yeah. The, uh, the edges of the road. So from my, my putting schools, when I'm traveling, I'll ask somebody, uh, pick somebody in the class. Hey, can you drive that golf cart from this green to the clubhouse and back without hitting anything? And 
I get this odd look. Yeah, I can handle that. I say, cool. How about trying that at two o'clock in the morning with no headlights? How do you like your chances? And they go, oh, well, it's way harder. And I said, exactly. Why is it harder? I can't see where I'm going. You can't see where the road is, right? And they go, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I said, okay, we'll treat your putting the same way. If you don't know where the edges of the road are, it's tough to find the middle. If a player doesn't know that this is too fast or this is too slow, how are they supposed to find middle? How is it supposed to recognize that they're deviating from it if we don't have a frame of reference? The road might be wide in that category for a beginner golfer that's just starting out. I might ask them to go really slow, like an iPhone in slow motion, and go really fast with their best Brant Snedeker impression, and then back to the middle. But then as they become more experienced, and that's certainly for a basic topic like that doesn't necessarily take too long, then we go, hey, here's a little bit too fast, here's a little bit too slow, here's just right. We'll hit some putts within a given size of stroke that highlights for them if the tempo is a little bit too fast on this particular surface, what are we going to expect the ball to do? If we're moving it a little bit too slowly, how far will we expect the ball to go? And that way they can start crafting an awareness of what the middle ground is. Because for something that's an intangible like tempo, we shouldn't be reliant on attaching something to the putter to figure out is this too fast or too slow. We should be finding practical ways for the player to recognize this is moving at about the right pace for today. This is me. This is my stroke signature. And they need a way, and they need a way to find it when that's starting to get lost. They need to recognize it's starting to break. And I fully recognize that as a putting guy, I'm from a recreational amateur, I'm going to get maybe 15 minutes before they head to the tee. If I'm lucky, I'm going to get 15 minutes. So I say, okay, I've got 15 minutes to figure out my setup. Well, can I hit it online? What's the green speed? And give me a couple of breaking putts so I get at least some semblance of what direction the ball is turning and how much. It's a lot to fit into that time. So I've been really, really working hard to craft the message in a way that it's practical and relevant. The uh, music to my ears, that is Preston. The uh, too much, too little, too right. The, the baby bear practices, whatever we want, want to call them. It's uh it's just a, a really sort of important factor, isn't it? With regards to that 15 minutes then of before you play, everyone's 15 minutes is going to be different. Are there any key aspects that need to be in there for everyone, apart from the fundamentals you've said already? Can you give however, to the listeners perhaps some, some good drills or things to do in that area to help calibrate them? Well, there are baselines that I would call my everyday items that players need to execute. They need to have a good awareness of what that list looks like. Everyday items would include how am I managing my setup? So mirrors, I think, are useful if used properly. Um, not trying to use them to get my eyes over the ball for players all the time. But if we know based on having worked with a coach, hey, here are a couple of stickers where my left and right eye should be positioned on this mirror relative to the ball, and I get the distance from the ball correct. With those two things in place, a lot of other stuff should fall into into place without working too hard. Arm bend, forward bend, head tilts, neck tilts, right? If I get just those two things right, the other stuff should be pretty close assuming the player doesn't arbitrarily decide to grip down an extra two inches on any given day. But 
you know, so poor, poor players in that instance, notwithstanding, you know, that would be a good starting point. What if I could take that setup station, I could blend it with, what if I could take that setup station, I could blend it with a baseline speed exercise. If I'm hitting my eight iron and it goes 150 yards at sea level, it'd be very functional if the total range was between 146 and 152. But if I were hitting eight iron and sometimes it goes 130 and sometimes 160, it's non-functional. So what are my baselines for speed? How am I creating a recognition that I can make the same size and same tempo stroke over and over in order to do like we do with 13 other clubs in the bag? We stand on the range and we hit balls trying to shrink our dispersion, try to get them to all finish closer to the target. We get to the putting green and we throw that out. What drill have you got for us for that? I'll figure out a given size of stroke that the player is comfortable with, find ways to measure it out, and then make sure that we're able to repeat that and making sure that that repeatability is functional. So that goes back to if we have a very fast tempo, we'd be hard pressed to make a small enough size of stroke to hit an eight foot downhill putt versus we have a very slow tempo, it'd be hard pressed to hit a 40 foot uphill putt. Stroke size needs to be massive to accommodate that. So learning what those middle grounds are, I think is, uh, I think is pretty important. Setting those baseline references for how am I going to figure my setup? How am I going to understand the green speed on any given day? If I'm making that same size and tempo stroke with that baseline on a medium green and a fast green, I should recognize the ball's doing something differently and it's not by virtue of me having changed. So bits of bits of information like information gathering like that in the first 10 minutes of being on the green, hugely important in my mind. I love that. So the would the the sort of speed drill there, for an example, be, you know, like if I give a the size of the stroke 12 inches, let's say, for an example, with a medium tempo, and the golfer measures the distance that ball goes on that dis that day. And then yeah. measure it on a fast screen and see how much that changes. Yeah, I think I would encourage players to practice something like that. If you've hung out on the Instagram account, you'll see the three T's laid out in front of the player. And I hate using tape measures. Nobody's going to do it if they have to carry a tape measure around. But one grip length back and through sets a baseline, baseline reference for a stroke. And with an average grip size and a medium tempo on a medium green speed, that ball goes about 12 feet. Obviously, there are other factors, right? Loft, impact, location, but that stuff uh, for all the Top Gun fans out there, I think is below the flight deck, right? It's just, it's a little too far in the weeds to say, I need to, that to be my top priority. But if I get the two baseline pieces of a given size of stroke in the same tempo, I should get the ball to go about the same distance over and over. And my effectiveness with speed is determined on how small is that dispersion. That dispersion needs to be a particular size at the end of the day. It can't be, it can't be two, it can't be a three foot spread from 12 feet. So if I'm hitting to a ghost hole that's 11 feet away, I can't hit one three inches by and three feet by and expect to be effective. How are you supposed to pick a target on a breaking putt, not knowing if, if I'm going to hit it with a speed that's dying speed or three feet by, right? None of it adds up, but it's so widely accepted because the player's definition of good speed is did I three putt or not from inside of 20 feet. I said, well, that's not, that doesn't matter. If you're hitting the 12 foot or four feet by and making the comebacker, that yes, it's a two putt. No, it didn't hurt you at the end of the day, not in any massive way, but 
you're really limiting your ability to create positive outcomes if you don't have that baseline in place to say, I can deliver the cup to the, the ball to the cup at a given speed from a variety of distances. That's my definition of good speed. Hmm. Can I create a good cap? Can I create a good capture speed at 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, and 50 feet? You know, cool. is, it, is it a quality capture speed at a variety of distances? And a lot of players, it's not. And for or it's not good enough. Sorry to cut up. For listeners, can you define what good is from different distances? What's a good capture? Uh, what's a good dispersion? Cap- oh. I mean, well, the, dis- the dispersion has to change for the same reason that we see six irons end up further away than sand wedges. The target's further away, so the dispersion has to be bigger. For the good capture speed for me, roughly a foot by, about a grip length, it's a safe, it's a safe number. Somewhere in that six to 12 inch window gets the job done. But with full recognition that I'm, as I start getting further away, I can't depend on all of these putts getting to the hole. It, I really am disappointed when I see players out there with an alignment rod two feet behind the cup and they're at 20, 30, 40, and 50 feet and they have to hit three putts from 20 feet, get them to the hole but not past the rod. Then same thing at 30 and 40 feet. It's really emphasizing that your only positive outcome is somewhere two feet past the cup from 40 feet away, but a putt left five inches short from 40 feet is fantastic. Why am I penalizing the player for that in that, in that setting? So I think properly mapping out what those, uh, what those ranges are and redefining what's acceptable helps us not only become more proficient, but more practical. I love it. That's good. Um, you've got my head spinning. With going back to the, the size of the stroke that's a grip length, on a given day is going 12 foot is great. Now, as we know, when we go onto the course, we could be putting up to slopes, up and down slopes, 3%, maybe 4%, sometimes more. But let's, if we stuck at 3%, what changes massively is how far that ball's gonna travel up and down a 3% slope. Sure. To my understanding, it's between 50 and 60% more or less. Now, I don't know, can't remember where I stole that from, but I think it's in that ballpark, would you say? There are thereabouts. I don't like assigning percentages to things because the math-driven players will really try to math it out versus maybe as part of my warm-up and those everyday items. Maybe I should check out a couple of small base strokes of that one grip back and through on flat, slightly uphill and slightly downhill, just so I can tuck it away in my memory banks. And I consider that if our speed's good inside of 20 feet, it's probably not going to, the day's not going to suck. I can't promise it's going to be a great day. I can't promise you're going to make everything, but it's just not going to be bad if my speed's good inside of 20 feet. You know, if I have five putts from uh, from outside of that distance, you know, I should still have enough information based on that small base stroke to recognize, okay, I think it's, we know it's some amount bigger than this, but it's just got to be in the ballpark. I just need to get it nearby from 30 feet. And oh. again, if, I, if I'm a recreational golfer, just want to temper those expectations that if I've done my good short putt work, 
And from inside of 40, I hit it anywhere inside of four feet. I should like my chances of two putting still. But what's the mindset for so many players? Oh gosh, 40 feet, here we go. Another three putt, that it's a, otherwise a decent putt to four feet, you know, well within the normal range. And then they go, oh, great, here we go again. But meanwhile, if they smoke it in there from 170 to four feet, they're absolutely thinking I'm going to make this birdie putt. So it's just a totally different mindset just based on whether or not we hit a six iron before or whether we hit a putter before. In my mind, it's still a four footer, right? Yes. Do we have external influences? Totally. But I also just want to make sure that the message is sent that if I have good systems and good processes in place, the prior club I hit doesn't matter. I shouldn't be able to feel like I can solve the problem. And listen, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to hit the 30 foot or five feet by once or twice. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you're destined to three putt the same way you, but we immediately assume we're just destined to make the five footer if we hit a good approach shot. So. It's interesting, the mindset, isn't it? Let's, uh, let's go down that rabbit hole of mindset. I think it's a, it's a huge aspect of golf, of life, of putting. So how do What's your advice perhaps for the listeners to help them? They've got the four foot putt to win their match. They're stood over the ball and the nerves are going. The negative thoughts are coming out. They're thinking well, they're going to miss rather than hold it. Talk us through. Well, I, don't, I don't think we should have ever gotten to the point where the first thought is, great, I'm going to miss this. Mm. And if so we haven't done our job previously any junior that's walked into an exam room and is worried about passing the test probably hasn't done his homework and probably hasn't prepared properly. So we're not allowed to have lofty expectations in that. Have I put the steps in place to manage that up? Four footers, I need to just read the green sufficiently enough, right? We're probably not gonna see a whole bunch of big benders from four feet. But, you know, so the putt's probably somewhere between zero and 2%. So. Do I know enough about green reading to decide is it a zero, one, or two? And do I have good enough mechanics in place to get this ball started to close enough online? Cool. And really, it's like if I've done my homework in those areas, I shouldn't have the thought, oh, great, here we go again. And if I'm seeing that pattern, I need to be able to answer, okay, why is this happening? There's obviously something missing, a piece to the puzzle that's missing, but from a practical standpoint, it's going to be one of three things. It's read, speed, or direction. It's like, what am I struggling with that's causing me to miss from that window? Brilliant. Great stuff. Okay, Justin. Go on, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I just don't, I don't, I don't think in this generation of 2020, that, or 2021, what year is it? 21, there we go. <laughs> I just, just don't think in, I don't think in this generation we should be sitting here going, I don't know what to do with this four footer. There's ample information out there and we just need to figure out how it's most relevant and applies to the person. Mm-hmm. You don't think that I, I get what you're saying, but you're still going to have moments that you your, your mind starts thinking, um, overthinking, you start having thoughts. What's, yeah. what's the best way to quieten down those thoughts? recognizing that they're happening and then go back to whatever the process is to mitigate risk in any given circumstance. Tell me more. Talk to me. 
I think questions further down that road are better suited for Rick Sessinghouse and Paul Dooland. <laughs> but uh, so uh, yeah, really, are they um, for- psychologists that I should get on the show? Performance coaches, yes, definitely. Um, what was the uh, name? Uh, Rick Sessinghouse. Well, uh, Rick's works with Colin Morikawa for uh, his entire playing career, and I've had the pleasure of spending some time with Rick. Boy, talk about talk about wisdom and practical experience being able to being translated at the highest level. He certainly embodies that. Um, I met Paul Dooland through David uh, when uh, Paul spoke at a flat stick conference some years ago, and he's in the Orlando area. He and I have become very good friends and just uh, happy to be able to refer my players to people with a deeper background in that department, uh, understanding goals versus um, uh, understanding goals versus expectations, for example, you know, and I think that's a book in and of itself in that particular category. So for me, just from the very practical coaching side, you know, if a player is struggling with a given spot, we need to figure out why we need to figure out what, uh, what our plans are. If we do notice that struggle starting to happen on the golf course, just what are we going to go back to? And it might be something that we've addressed before and it might not be too, could be a new issue, right? Could be the, or it could be the player just went, you know, I just, I clearly have missed a piece here in my process, right? Maybe they're not calibrating their arm bend for their aim point read properly. Could be as simple as that. And then they start seeing some short putts miss, but if they misdiagnose the putts that are missing to the right on a left to right putt as a stroke error, and then they start going to fiddle with their stroke, then they get on a left to right or now they miss that one low. And then we get the snowball, right? So if I could leave with a, leave a message out there for any of the listeners, understanding misses, why did that ball miss? Is it a read speed or direction error? I'm properly assessing those uh, possible outcomes here. You know, my best players, I, they fully recognize, yep, that was, even though the ball finished past the cup, it was not enough speed. Cool. You'll see that on faster greens with breaking putts. I'll just kind of throw that out there. Probably an Instagram again, post. Sorry. Used, um, you'll probably see on you know, on faster greens, you could have a ball finish past the cup from the north-south sense, but it wasn't enough speed. Got you. All right, so for our, our ideal speed is a foot past the cup, and I've got a fast green with a left-to-right putt. You know, that ball could, quote-unquote, fall out the cone about three-quarters the way there. But player sees the ball finish six inches past the cup, so they just immediately assume, hey, I've, you know, I hit it hard enough, so it must be a read error, a stroke error. And the reality is, yeah, that six inches by on that fast green with that breaking putt probably didn't have enough carrying speed to stay within the desired cone. Abstract, probably better seen on Instagram, but just keep it in mind, just because the ball finishes past the cup doesn't meet, it doesn't immediately write off that it was a uh, good speed. Totally, yeah. I think the um, cone would be a really interesting thing for you to explain to the listeners. I think often they believe that there's one line for every putt. So can you do your best to explain the cone for us? Uh, definitely. So when you have a breaking putt, we know that there's a given aim point or a given starting direction that's going to give us the best opportunity to hold the putt that matches up with an ideal capture speed. And that's all well and fine, but understanding that there's a cone of acceptance too, where I can start it above this line, 
with slightly less speed and have a better and still have an opportunity to make the putt. I can start it below that line with more speed and I still have an opportunity to make the putt. I'm a big fan of players living on the top side of the cone though, because there's more margin for error. And it's really surprising once you start getting below a given aim point read, how little room there is in order to make that work. And so now all of a sudden, we're not trying to use our data to zero out our launch direction, our face at impact on breaking putts. We want to say, what's the tolerable window that we can live and living with a face that's on the slightly on a left to right putt, slightly closed to that aim point, probably not a bad idea, probably not the end of the world versus an equivalent amount open. So let's say one degree closed relative to that aim point versus one degree open. I mean, the one degree open has almost no chance of going in on a 10 footer, 2% from uh, on a stim 12. It just, it starts way too far, right? Versus the same mistake on the opposite side, plenty of opportunity for that to go in. So now this is, this is, this is the problem that we run into. Our block practice is built around, I'm trying to hit every putt straight. I'm trying to zero everything out. And then I get on breaking putts and that's not maybe, maybe not necessarily your uh, most functional approach. Doesn't increase your opportunities the best. Now this gets into how are we building our practice? Is our block practice just limited to string lines and chalk lines on flat six footers? Or are we in fact block practicing on one, two and 3% tilts on right to left and left to right from five, 10 and 15 feet? We'll, ha we'll happily camp out on the range and block practice seven irons and flighted seven irons and some with a little bit of curve in either direction in case we need it versus putting. It's just limited to we'll just block practice the mechanics on the flat ones. Mm -hmm. Never made sense to me. No, no, totally. What's a, uh, a nice drill to practice the cone, Preston, that you give your players? I, I think... Faxon's absolutely on point with the high line, low line, and medium line. Help establish an awareness of that. I think you can use string lines, ramps, or uh, chalk lines to better see and visualize what that looks like so that you're practicing it effectively. But just playing, playing around with the properly managing the variability, right? So setting up maybe a ball gate using a couple of ball markers big fan of using ball markers instead of tees because at least the ball can roll over the marker you can yep. see what happened if it's a miss instead of crashing into a gate and the feedback ending and then you can say hey what happens if i try to skirt this putt you know closer to the left marker how much room do i have heck can i hit it over the left marker and still get it to go in now all of a sudden we can start better framing here are possible launch windows that actually make sense for this particular putt right Great stuff. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, I'm conscious of your time. Um, just got one more question for your, uh, if you could just share with the listeners your favorite drill to improve green reading. I think let's, that's it. let's talk about aim point as well. Okay. Um, aim point for me, the most reliable system for being able to figure out how and why a ball breaks and adapt to different green speeds. I think the exercise we just talked about is really helpful for a player to see what our possible cones are, you know, setting a given launch, launch window, 
not necessarily completing that exercise to an actual cup. Ghost holes, I think, allow us to better see what's happening because we have concrete feedback for how far by the cup would the ball go if I were to play it a little bit on the low side and start immediately recognizing that, hey, I don't like seeing this 10-footer go three feet by. Maybe I should shift my launch window further up the hill. So I think it's, you know, we've been wrapped up in exercises that are just this zero-sum game of did I make it, did I miss it, as opposed to recognizing, hey, if I keep hitting putts on this launch window on this breaking five-footer, yes, they all might be going in, but if they're going in with three-foot by pace, is that something I really want to train? Definitely, definitely not. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> No, probably probably not three foot by speed. I mean, you'd have to be demonstrating for me some pretty exceptional talent in order to say that I can make this the baseline that I can work off of. And this goes back to corridors, right? That what's my window of acceptance? And if I'm going to deviate from the best possible way or the strategy that maximizes the size of the cup, if I'm going to deviate from that, I probably have even more stringent requirements for showing me that you can be consistent within that range fantastic preston uh, it's been an absolute pleasure i really enjoyed talking to you thank you so much for coming on to the uh the show can you just share with the listeners where they can find out more about you where can they take an online pattern lesson with you where can you course kings or oh is that is that right? Are you in Course Kings now? Or is that yep, like still, a- yep, yeah, still, yeah, no, still, that- in the, still in the Course Kings platform with uh, with Radar and the other guys there. That's uh, been a great opportunity to share some info. Uh, you can find me through uh, my website, PrestonsPutting.com. The Instagram is at Preston's Putting, and if you care about baseball, uh, the Twitter account for uh, also at Preston's Putting. The, uh, but yeah, the, the golf stuff, the golf stuff on the website, online lessons available through that Instagram, easy way to find me, check out some of the content and pick up a few nuggets along the way, like you've uh, allowed me to share here. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Preston.